The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time we have to get back together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and we ask that you illuminate um, our discussion as we uh, talk about it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's, uh, we, are, we are back on page six um, for, the, uh, for the sacraments. We are, uh, we'll go ahead and recite this like we normally do, and then we'll move on in talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, page six. How many sacraments has Christ authorized in his church? Two only, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that are generally necessary to salvation. What do you mean when you speak of a sacrament? I mean an outward and visible sign authorized by Christ of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us and way and means whereby we both receive the spiritual grace and are also given a pledge to assure us of this receiving. How many parts are there to a sacrament? Two, the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. What is the outward and visible sign in baptism? Water, in which the person is baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What is the inward and spiritual grace? It is being born again of the Holy Spirit, and made a child of God by adoption and grace. That is, it is a dying to sin and a new birth into righteousness. What is required of persons to be baptized? Two things. Repentance, which is a turning away from sin, and faith, which is steadfastly believing the promise of God concerning Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel and the sacraments. Why are infants baptized when it is clear they cannot consciously engage in repentance and faith? They are baptized on the basis of the promises made on their behalf by their godparents and in anticipation of their sure acceptance of these same promises when they reach maturity. Why was the sacrament of the Lord's Supper ordained by Christ? For the continual remembering of the sacrifice of the death of Christ and of the benefits we receive from this sacrifice. What is the outward and visible part of the Lord's Supper? Bread and wine, which the Lord commanded to be received. What is the inward and spiritual part, that, with that which is signified by the outward? The body and blood of Christ, which are really and truly received by the faithful in the Lord's Supper. What are the benefits received by the faithful by partaking? The strengthening and refreshing of our souls by the body and blood of Christ, even as our bodies are strengthened and refreshed by the bread and wine. What is required of those who come to the Lord's Supper? They are to examine themselves to be sure that they repent of their sins, are steadfastly intending to lead a new life, have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ, thankfully remember his death, and are in loving and charitable to everyone. Are there other sacraments? Other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and anointing of the sick. These are sometimes called the sacraments of the church. How do these differ from the sacraments of the gospel? They are not commanded by Christ as necessary for salvation, but arise from the practice of the apostles in the early church, or are states of life blessed by God from creation. God clearly uses them as means of grace. Okay, so last week we began our talk, sorry, two weeks ago, apologies to everyone that showed up uh, and I and not, didn't get my, my message on that. Um, 
uh, two weeks ago, we did talk about, uh, the, we began to talk about the Lord's Supper. And what I'd like to do is look at what, um, in terms of the, uh, the, the language of, um, that it's, it's um, for the continual remembering of the sacrifice of the death of Christ and the benefits we receive from this sacrifice. I want to look at a few things in our communion liturgy. If you have your prayer book, um, page 80, if you don't have a prayer book, we have some on the shelf there. Um, so this is the consecration prayer in Holy Communion. So we begin the consecration proper by saying, by praying, All glory be to thee, Almighty God, our, our Heavenly Father, for that thou, of thy tender mercy, didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. So that's putting this whole thing into, into context, right? This is, we are, we, are, we are praising God for what he did in sending his son Jesus to suffer death for our redemption. And then we say, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So this is telling us what Jesus did. Notice this, um, this, this repeat of oblation, by his one oblation of himself once offered. This is sacrificial, sacrificial language, right? And then we drive it home with um, who made the, or he made a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. Um, we're driving home two things. Number one, that this is once for all, and number two, that it is um, it is that sacrifice that it is it is all those things that we were getting in the Old Testament that, that we had to do again and again and again, uh, but were not sufficient to actually deal fully with the problem of sin. And then we have and it institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. So we have a few things going on here regarding the Lord's Supper itself. First of all, we recognize this is something Jesus instituted, right? Um, and in the gospel, he commanded us to continue what he instituted, which is that, that celebration of the Lord's Supper, and that, that it is a perpetual, that is everlasting, memory of his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. So this is something we are going to always do, but not forever, because when he comes again, we won't need to do that anymore. Um, so that, that sets that, that answer to that question of the for continual remembrance of the sacrifice and death of Christ. Notice, notice how it did, it did speak of his, his command for us to do this. Um, skip on down to, to the next big paragraph where it's uh, subtitled The Oblation. Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of thy dearly beloved Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, wherefore, of course, means therefore. Um, that's, that's the uh, old language. It means, it means therefore. That is, we're doing this because, you know, um, uh, the, um, so, um, Okay, well, I kind of skipped the sentence, sorry. <laughs> I broke us halfway through the sentence. Okay, wherefore, or that is therefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of thy dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we, thy humble servants, do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty with these thy holy gifts, which we now offer unto thee, the memorial thy Son hath commanded us to make. We can pause there. Um, sometimes the prayer book can get confusing because of all those subordinate clauses, right? So it, it can be very helpful to kind of break down, uh, break things down by, okay, what's, 
use our old English language skills, you know, our, our sentence diagramming. Actually, I don't ever remember actually diagramming, but we can say, okay, um, what's, who, who's doing the action in this oblation? Okay, we are, we're doing something. What are we doing? We are doing something according to what Jesus instituted. And what are we doing? We're celebrating and making here before God's majesty um, the memorial that Jesus commanded us to make. So again, we're emphasizing we're doing this because we're commanded to. That's part of why we're doing this. Uh, and, and, and what is it? What are we using? We're using the holy gifts. So these are set apart. The bread and wine are set apart. And we're offering them to God as part of, our, um, uh, of what we're doing in our worship. And um, so, so that's what's going on. And then here's why. Next page. Having in remembrance his blessed passion and precious death, his mighty resurrection, glorious ascension, rendering unto thee most hearty thanks for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. So part of that worship is rendering him that thanks. That's where we get that word Eucharist. We talked about that. And that this is in remembrance of his passion. That means his suffering, right? His blessed passion, his precious death, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. So this whole part of the gospel story is, is tied up in um, us, us remembering this is tied up with our worship. Us doing this in, 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 um, in obedience is part of, uh, part of why, that, why that happens. So, so our, our liturgy really does give us some of the theology here. We're going to touch on some of the other parts of this as we go throughout this question. Uh, but, but this is really the liturgical answer to um, the question, why was the supper ordained by Christ? And, and again, it is helpful in prayer book language sometimes to kind of get a little bit beyond those subordinate clauses and really kind of, okay, what are we actually saying here? Um, what, what, what are we praying here? Um, questions, comments on that before we, we, we get to the next question and probably look at some more parts of the liturgy. It was, was that totally confusing, or does that, does that help, help break things up? Okay, okay, good. Good, good, good. Yeah, because even though it's, it's, it's very wordy, it, it shouldn't be confusing, and, and we as the priests need to remember to read it in such a way <laughs> that helps illuminate the text. That's a, that's a big problem with a lot of priests. Um, that's a big liturgical uh, hammer I've been, uh, or nail I've been hammering with, uh, with everybody in uh, my circle of influence lately. Okay. And it's been effective. So oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've learned to pay attention more. Yeah, and it's, it's what I'm doing, and not to rush through it. Because when I was new, I had that tendency to kind of rush through it. And, and we all do. Yeah, we all rush through it. I mean, and, and we do it every week, sometimes twice a week, and so it's very easy for priests just to kind of get on autopilot and and not really think about what we do. And as the people, it's really easy just to kind of put our ears on autopilot where we're not really engaging with the prayer. We're just kind of being dragged along for a ride that we're not really paying attention to. So, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a reflective devotion on the head as we go through this. And you're talking about the gospel being powerfully proclaimed. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it reminds me of if you've ever had to take a, a road that you do like every day or a couple times a day, you get to the point where you just kind of zone out and I mean, it's not like you're falling asleep or anything, but you realize, okay, where am I and how did I get here? You know, be, you know and that, that can happen with the prayers too. Okay, what is the outward and visible part of the Lord's Supper? 
bread and wine which the Lord commanded to be received? What is the inward and spiritual part, that which is signified by the outward, the body and blood of Christ, which are really and truly received by the faithful in the Lord's Supper? Okay, I think we need to take a little detour um, into, into talking about some of the ways that this gets addressed in, in, in different parts of the church. Um, I'm going to first read what we have in one of our 39 articles of religion. If you do have your prayer book, this is page 608. Page 608. Um, oh, by the way, um, on page 609, here's what article 31 says about, well, no, you know, we'll get there. We'll get to there later. There, there's so much to unpack. The question is always going to be, what order do we unpack this in? Uh, because otherwise, it, yeah, it just get really confusing. Okay. So this is article number 28 of the Lord's Supper. So this is the official Anglican position on the Lord's Supper here. This is our doctrinal statement from the time of the Reformation. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Okay, first of all, do you all remember where that pops up, that language is in Scripture? Okay, well, let's look at, in 1 Corinthians, what St. Paul has to say about the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians, um, and because we're, we, are, we are completely just borrowing what Paul says. Um, yeah, what, what, what St. Paul says here. Okay. Um, but the following instructions, this is beginning at verse 17, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, And the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but out of the worst. For in the first, first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you must, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So we've got a chaotic Lord's Supper going on here that because of the chaos, because of the lack of unity, because of the lack of charity between the brethren, um, it is no longer the Lord's Supper for them. Right? So they, they are denied the benefit of the sacrament because they are not in love and charity with their neighbor, as we say in our liturgy. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is the language where we get the liturgy itself. Every Christian tradition uses this passage as the basis for, for, um, for what we call the words of institution. Okay, then he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself 
then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might may not be condemned along with the world. Again, driving home the, po- the point that their, their contentions are denying them the benefit of the sacrament, but instead they're getting, they're getting the, um, it, it's really a, um, condemnation that they're drinking. Um, and actually, let's back, let's back up a little bit. Here we go. Let's back up to chapter 10. This is really where I was going. Um, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we eat, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. That's actually where I was looking for. I misquoted there. But that other passage is going to come up in just a second. So this idea of partaking in the, in the body and blood of Christ, um, participating in it, is, is directly from St. Paul. And there is this, this idea that that participation is a sign of love and unity. But what we're saying in the beginning, it is, that's not only what it is. Because in addition to that sign of love and unity, that one bread um, or one body, we being many are one body, but we are also participating in the body and blood of Christ. When I was in Baptist uh, graduate school in our theology class, we were talking about in what way can we talk about Christ being present in the sacrament and being good Baptists, the way they, they, they concluded was, well, Christ is present because his people are present and therefore that's how he's present when we're having communion. Well, we are saying that is not the only way. <laughs> I'm saying yes, that's true, but that's not. But it, that's a lot more than that. So we are we are saying it's not only a sign that we're all together and loving each other, but rather it's also a sacrament of our redemption, outward sign, in, inward and spiritual grace. Let's go to the next paragraph in the article: transubstantiation or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture overthroweth the nature of a sacrament and hath given occasion to many superstitions. This is addressing specifically the way the doctrine, the Eucharistic doctrine had developed um, since the 12th century in the Western church. This is not the way it was ever articulated in the Eastern church. Matter of fact, they just really never articulated it at all, which is, the, which is, which is good because that's the way, I mean, that's what we see in the church fathers. They, they, they have, some, some father may Articulated in one way, one another, but we don't have this consensus of the fathers in the way in which the body and blood, um, and, and, and in what way we have the body and the blood in the in the bread and wine. They don't ever really come to any conclusions patristically. But in the 12th century, what we have in the Western Church is this revival of Greek philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, that um, has that, that centers on this idea of substance and, um, and essence, or, um, or the, um, the substance and the accidents. So the idea being that in, in Platonic philosophy, there is kind of out there, in, in the realm of what is really, really real, um, there is kind of an ideal form of everything. 
So um, we all recognize a chair, even though these chairs look different. This, this one has a back and is high and is on four legs and has a place for your feet. These ones you're sitting on has a back, but it doesn't have a place for your feet. This one's round that I'm sitting on and has a um, place for your feet and it's really, it's much taller. That one has a table for the babies and it only has two legs, but they're very fat legs, but yet they're all a chair. The sofa's not the same kind of chair as this chair. And the Platonists would say there's some ideal of chairness out there that everything is tapping into. These are the accidents of that ideal chairness. This is like a deep-seated belief. A deep-seated, oh my gosh. That's on the tape, by the way. I just have you know that you, your, your, pun, your, pun, your pun is out there in, in, in about half an hour. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so um, what, what, what they were tapping into that that, that kind of revival of Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy is that the theologians began to talk about what's happening in the Lord's Supper is that the accidents of bread and wine um, remain, but its ideal, its substance, is no longer bread and wine. In everything that really matters, it's no longer bread and wine, but it's the body and blood of Christ. And... Um, the, the problem we end up having with that is it leads to, as the article says, um, a bunch of abuses. First of all, we get this superstition that now the bread and the wine ought to be, ought to be worshipped in the same way we would worship Christ. And so you have monstrances coming out and we are going to bow down to the monstrance as if it were Christ because that is Christ, right? That's his body and blood. His body, well, I forget how they phrase it, but it's... Um, Body, soul, and divinity are all, um, it has been changed, body, soul, and divinity, into our Lord Jesus himself. Um, you, you, you have this idea that, well, because we're, we can worship the host and the, and the wine virtually, we don't have to partake of the supper the way Jesus commanded us to, because that worship, when we gaze upon it, is just as good. And so now, the laity aren't, taking, aren't partaking of the sacraments anymore. Oh, and then we have, oh yeah, hey, did you hear down in the other village over there, they bit into the, uh, the host, the priest did, and, um, and it turned into a finger, and you know, there was blood coming down, and you know, all this other stuff. You get, you get this weird stuff like that happening. And, and it, it just ends up being, being, being problematic in terms of superstition, but also, as we say, it overthrows the nature of the sacrament. Because in a sacrament, you've got an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. They're saying that that sign no longer exists. The bread and the wine have on a substantial level, any level that really matters, other than what our senses can actually touch. Our senses are lying to us, according to this, you know, at this point. Um, that there is no longer bread and wine. We only have the body and blood of Christ. So that overthrows the nature of the sacrament. And, of course, you don't find this anywhere in Scripture. That's not, that's not what is going on. Because when Paul talks about, in, in the passage we just read, the body and blood of the Lord, he's also talking about bread and wine. You know, we don't have this replacement, um, replacement idea going on here. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it, it becomes really problematic uh, and then, it, then, it's, then we have here, the body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a heavenly and spiritual matter. 
manner and the mean whereby the body and blood of Christ is received and eaten the supper is faith. Um, so this idea that we are spiritually partaking of the body and blood, but physically we're still partaking of bread and wine. And in the eyes of the reformers, that spiritual reality is what really matters. Just because something is spiritual rather than physical doesn't mean it's less real. In fact, because it's permanent, something that's spiritual in the eyes of the reformers is more real than that which is physical, because this is which is physical is passing away. Uh, Father. Is that where the concept of real presence fits? Uh, real presence becomes weasel words that everybody uses to try to not define it, okay. which is okay. I mean, that's okay, yeah. I mean, because, because when, when you ask a Roman Catholic what does he mean by real presence, he means transubstantiation. When you ask um, a Calvinist, they mean something completely different. They mean, they mean that spiritual presence. When you ask a, um, a Lutheran, they're going to say, yeah, we got bread and wine, but we also got the physical body and blood locally present as well. Um, in, in, in with and under, you know, that, that, that they don't like this term, but most everybody else calls it consubstantiation. So, but everybody's going to say real presence so that we don't have to, we don't have to have these arguments. Or rather so that they can accuse everybody else of not believing in the real presence. That's the other way that happens. You know, I really, really, really believe in the real presence. Mine is a really real, real presence. Yours is only not quite as real of a real presence. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, and and that, those are the arguments that end up happening. And again, the problem with this is that this, these don't really become arguments until the 16th century. I mean, they, until the 12th century, really, when, when Rome starts doing its thing. Um, and then it, then it talks about the sacrament was not to be reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. This goes back to some of those medieval practices. Um, our reservation of the sacrament is for the sake of bringing it to those that cannot um, participate. It's not for the purpose of Eucharistic adoration because... I think there's problems with Eucharistic adoration. Now, I know Anglo-Catholics listening to me on this are throwing things at their, uh, at their, uh, their iPod right now. I um, hope it's not too hard. I don't want to break their iPod. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what our articles say. That's what we confess. That's what the language of the prayer book says. Um, and you don't ever see this idea of Eucharistic adoration, this worship aspect like you see in Roman Catholic circles until the Middle Ages. It's, it's very much an innovation that happens in the Western church. And this is one of those areas where just because Rome says it's so doesn't mean that they get to define what's Catholic. I mean, the, the, the church as a whole is what's Catholic, not just one particular branch of it. So um, We've got like three minutes. Um, we, can, we, can, we can ask or field a question or two, but we're going to keep going on and looking at the... Uh, what we see in some of the, uh, the the articles, as well as how that applies to our um, our sacramental theology, uh, as we move forward. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, then I will see you all in Compline in about fifteen minutes. Then.